one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. As this audience knows, NASA and its international partners are embarking on a new trip to the moon and hopefully onto Mars. Uh, this whole audience here knows about that, but uh, does anybody outside the space sphere understand what's going on? Does the public at large know about Artemis? And if so, do they support it? And what are their thoughts overall? about the space program. And that's what my good friend here, Nathan Price, set out to do here with his website, Countdown to the Moon. That is countdowntothemoon.org. Um, Nathan is kind enough to join us this evening. How are you doing, Nathan? Oh, I'm doing well, Gene. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I, I went through the process, so I thought I'd go ahead and uh, your process. So I go thought I'd go ahead and, and turn the tables on you here. So could you go ahead and explain first about yourself? What what got you into into spaceflight, and uh, you know where where are you coming from as far as far as the space angle? What, what, how did you get all 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 interested in this? Yeah, I. You know, I remember in the early 1980s, um, my dad taking me to the Johnson Space Center and we used to, you know, at that time there wasn't Space Center Houston with the Visitor Center. You would actually come onto the Johnson Space Center facility and walk from building to building, looking at the different exhibits that they had, you know, Skylab in one building, uh, a, a Mercury capsule in another, a Gemini capsule over here. You could go and see the viewing room for the, the, the space shuttle. Uh, you know, you could see the viewing room for the uh, historic uh, mission control uh, room. And I'm not sure if our visits were a result of my interest in space or was uh, a cause of it, but it was definitely a, a good memory that I had. And, you know, in middle school and high school, my friends were interested and I were interested in two things, computers and space. And of course, we graduated from high school, just at the same time that the internet was taking off and anybody who knew anything about computers could get a job. So I took a detour that direction, working for an internet service provider and then a web development firm and Compaq and HP, and eventually worked for a, a software company called Anaplan. And after, you know, SpaceX started trying to reuse the, the first uh, stage rocket of the, the Falcon 9, uh, and after, you know, Blue Origin and, and all these space companies are coming up, my interest in space got rekindled. Uh, in 2016, 
uh, when to go see Gwen Shotwell at McGregor at a at a event that the Chamber of Commerce is hosting up there. Also that same year, I went down to the International Astronautical Congress in Guadalajara, where Elon was going to be unveiling the interplanetary transportation system, uh, and later to be called the BFR, and now is known as uh, Starship Super Heavy, and, and started a, a national space society chapter here in Houston called the North Houston Space Society, where we have monthly meetings and try to engage with the public. And so kind of exploring my interest, you know, in, in my free time and, and doing things like this. Uh, but then, you know, after the kids left for college, I found that, you know, I, I really was um, was thinking maybe I should go do something more uh, with space and I actually had a coworker die at uh, work. Uh, you know, one week he's on like the weekly team meetings, and the next week he's not there. And for me, that kind of triggered a lot of things. You know, if you're not doing it now, you may never do it. Uh, and so that actually led me off to uh, go start an entry level job at the Johnson Space Center and, and flight operations, working in the Spartan Group, which is the electrical, thermal, and mechanical group. Uh, which is responsible for uh, the power of operating the power uh, systems on the ISS as well as external thermal control systems. Kind of going back to uh, 2019, uh, NASA is saying that they're going to have the next astronauts on the moon in 2024. Uh, Jim Bridenstine is the, the NASA administrator. Uh, he brings on board Doug Laverio, who's going to be head of the Human Exploration Operations uh, Division. And Doug, in his like first big public event, which was the you know core stage complete event at the end of 2019, uh, shows a lapel pen that he has where he's counting down the days to the end of 2024. And he talks about how he plans to go around NASA and highlight a person as being like the hero hero of the day, um, the person that's actually helping get us to the, the moon. And he would select, you know, engineers, uh, astronauts, business people, administrators, technicians, and kind of just highlight the work that they were doing, their contribution. Well, whenever he announced that in 2019, for some reason, I, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be good to kind of document what the average everyday person thought about this through kind of selecting one person per day and having a nice casual conversation with them? And then, you know, these interviews over the course of, you know, 2019 through the end of 2024 would kind of allow for us to capture people's perceptions today and then also how that would change as Artemis 1 happened, Artemis 2 happened, Artemis 3 happened, and just kind of get people's uh, thoughts on it. And I personally believe that, you know, just like the 1990s were transformational for the internet, that the 2020s are going to be transformational for spaceflight. And the world that we're going to live in at the end of this decade in terms of our ability to access and utilize space is going to be something that in 2020 we could not have even imagined. And 
by capturing half a decade of interviews through these casual conversations, I hope to uh, get get a perspective on that. So that's that's sort of it's probably the answer to lots of questions that you were thinking about asking. <laughs> yeah, it is actually. Um, the one thing I was I was doing, I was poking through um, through the website and some of the conclusions that you've you've discovered, and it was. In some cases, it, it was. I'm not surprised, but in other cases, it was jarring. What if, What are the things the, that that you've learned from all of this uh, about the public's attitudes, not only toward the Artemis program and toward uh, what you've? You know, first off, what's? Let, let me take this again. What did you find out when you told people that you know don't follow in these circles? Uh, that the United States is going back to the lunar surface with international partners. The the vast majority of people that I talk to, and these are people that I approach at Starbucks uh, drinking their lattes, are on a pier here uh, fishing in, in like Clear Lake or who happen to sit next to me on the airplane where I, I'm flying uh, to places. I think uh, Spirit what has a lucky seat. So uh, if I'm on a plane, then there's always a lucky seat next to me. You never know, you might be the countdown to the moon interview of the day. But I got a large variety of, of views. But one thing that seems to be fairly consistent, I asked the question, did you know that NASA's planets and astronauts back to the moon? Right. And the most common response I've gotten so far is not until you told me. Uh, wow. So, and this is in a space town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This that's, is that's amazing. This is. Uh, and, you know, I've interviewed people all over uh, the world uh, and, you know, all over the United States as well. So this is a. a but even, you know, at a. A Japanese restaurant right down the street from the Johnson Space Center, uh, you know, the, the answer to that question is, no, I, I had no clue we were going back to the moon. Wow. And, and is, that, is that the majority of, of what you're seeing, that, that, that a lot of people are not aware of, of the Artemis program? It is. 80% of people that I talk to uh, do not know that NASA is planning to go back to the moon. When you tell them, you know, that that's the game plan, what's what's the reaction there? Is is it one of like, oh, wow, really? Tell me more. Or like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> it's across the board. I have had the reaction of that's great. It's about time to uh, the most pessimistic uh, response I think I got was we shouldn't go to the moon. We shouldn't mess up the moon. Uh, we've already messed up the Earth, which is. Uh, I, I thought was um, kind of a challenging uh, response there. And uh, there's this one interview that I had at the airport, actually, um, where uh, the, the gentleman I interviewed was, um, you know, Apollo denier, and he was visibly angry and upset about uh, NASA. But I was really felt um, good to at least – hear that perspective as well. A lot of people have questions about why are we going? They're like, haven't we gone to the moon before? And then other people are like, well, you know, the government wastes so much money, might as well do it on something inspirational, which I'm not sure how to take that response. But uh, it's, it's, it is uh, some of the things I've heard. But uh, 
I would say that the majority of the people that I've talked to are either excited or supportive. And, uh, you know, there is a significant amount of people that I talked to uh, who have questions about it. And uh, probably a, a, a large, you know, a, a very small part of the people are actually absolutely against it. And the thing, though, is, you know, there is a bit of sampling bias. People, I, I ask lots of people in a day if they would be willing to do an interview. Mm-hmm. I don't always get S, uh, yeses on the first time. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people who aren't interested in space or who have negative views are often hesitant to uh, participate. Uh, as well. So, um, you know, even though that I've talked to a lot of people who are supportive or would be supportive if they had more information, there's also a bit of sampling bias just because of the nature of the project. Now, uh, I was just really, really curious as far as how do you go about, you know, conducting the interview? How do you go about just selecting a person? Is it just somebody that, hey, you know, you just run into them on at uh, at a hotel or at the airport or you know just walking around down the street it's just really random and that's that's a large part of them and whenever i started the project other than family and friends i thought that would be the vast majority of it of course right. uh i start this project of approaching a stranger a day to ask about the moon and then in february of 2020 we have the COVID lockdowns so the idea of going up to random strangers at that point uh, was even more, uh, you know, difficult. I, I'm not, I'm not sure how that would work. So I, I had to adjust with the times, and I did a lot of interviews on online, uh, reaching out to people on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I even tried like one of these random video uh, chatting sites, but that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a positive experience. <laughs> um, is there like a set of, of of just standard questions that you ask, or I mean, how basically how scientific is this? Are are, do you, are you planning to go ahead and take what you're doing with this particular website and this endeavor, and try to go ahead and and take a scientific sample, really, of of people's attitudes toward uh, toward spaceflight? I would say it's not scientific at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's it's probably the idea of, you know, one of these books like um, The People of New York, where you have portraits of, of various people. So I think it it would give you a sense on sort of the extent of variation of views and how people are approaching it. But I don't. So I think it I think it's going to be useful from understanding from a qualitative perspective of the range of views and how those views are expressed and the level of knowledge that it has. But I think it's poor from a quantitative perspective of understanding where the, the density of, of those views are. Okay. Because I, I, was, I was just curious what, what the end game of, of the website is going to be. Is this going to be just simply a collection of, of individuals that, uh, you want to go ahead and archive and and keep for uh, for later. Um, you know, is it something that perhaps maybe you know, historians years from now would go ahead and take a look, try to see if 
if um, you know what what the uh, what the thought was about about uh, about space program about about the space program. Excuse me, from you know say when the website started, which I'm thinking if I'm looking at this right, it's uh, you started doing this in December of 2019, and that is uh, correct. Yeah, right. COVID must have been a real bust for this thing. <laughs> it was. It was. I, I thought I would capture people's views as we went to the moon, but I think I, it may also be sort of uh, an interesting kind of perspective on how COVID and our interactions changed as a result of COVID as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you have that. But in terms of in-game, one thing I like to tell people and what I think about is that my target audience hasn't even been born yet. So I really do believe it's like from a historical perspective. Okay. I, okay. I like to think about, you know, sort of our views on air travel. Um, today, if you go and ask people about air travel, like, do you think you'll be able to fly any place in the world? Do you, what, what do you think uh, that experience would be like? You know, there's such a, um, universal kind of experience about air travel of the day that is hard to really imagine all the different ways it could have unfolded. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I think if you went back 200 years and you asked people about air travel, the vast majority of people probably would tell you, you know, that you're crazy and that there's no chance that we'll ever be flying and, you know, that type of thing. I think the interesting time to talk to people about air travel would have been sometime after the Wright brothers did their flight and before the kind of current form of the airplane and airports and the transportation system happened. Like maybe at the, the end of the, the, you know, that first decade in 1905 to like 1910 or 1910 to 1915, you know, around that period, whenever you have evidence that it's going to happen, but the same token, it hasn't become pervasive and it has, hasn't kind of settled into its, you know, ubiquitous form. And I, I feel like we're at that same point with, in terms of our ability to access space. You know, we have SpaceX and we had Inspiration4 and we have like Starship and, you know, a whole bunch of different companies uh, just kind of emerging uh, so there, there's like evidence. I mean, both the pessimists and the optimists have plenty of data to work with right now. Uh, right. You know, one's kind of one. And so I think this would be an interesting period to actually get people's thoughts on. What is the mo- what, what has been so far the most startling interview that you've had that it's really, really taking you back when you go ahead and ask a question? Um, you know, say, OK, we're not, you know, do you know if we're going to the moon? What what do you think about Spaceflight in general, um, would you take a chance of of going into space? That'd be an interesting question, considering in light of um, the news uh, uh, just this uh, this afternoon, in light of the uh, uh, the Titan uh, loss under under the uh, the ocean today. Um, I'm just wondering what would you what was so far been the most startling um, aspect of this, or most startling interview that you've had. Right, be- right before the COVID lockdowns really, really happened, I think it was like in March of uh, 2020, I, I ran into a mother-daughter um, 
uh, you know, pair that, um, you know, my son who happened to be with me went to school with the daughter and um, I interviewed them at the gas pump. I thought that was kind of neat, but uh, sort of like one little cute moment that I really liked was asking that question to both of them. Would you take a trip to space? And the mom was like, yeah, sure, I definitely would. And the daughter said, no, I don't think so. And the mom was surprised by that. She's like, you do everything. Why wouldn't you take a trip to space? And sort of seeing that generational um, in-family different, like something they probably never, ever talked about. Uh, and then to have this realization that they had this difference between them. I, I, I found that to be really in, insightful. Some really comical responses I've gotten was... Yeah. Asked one person, uh, you know, would you take a trip to space? And he's like, yeah, even if I had to be abducted by aliens to do it, you know. I thought that was, <laughs> that was cool. Uh, anything, and anything veer into that that area <laughs> as you were talking? I have to ask. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, people ask oh, if you have yeah. UFOs, if, you know, do you think there's UFOs are real? Do you think there's life out there? Do you think we're the only ones? All, all this type of thing. I, I thought it was interesting. I went to an astronaut talk at a Space Center Houston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of kids out in the crowd, and they always ask uh, interesting questions. And, you know, one of them asked, hey, do you believe in aliens? And, you know, the, the astronaut was like, hey, I've, I've seen Earth from space. And I've, uh, you know, the Caribbean is like the absolutely um, most beautiful place uh, that you can see from orbit. And it's not Roswell, New Mexico. That's the most beautiful place. And he's like, I got to believe that if you've come all this way and you're looking at the Earth from orbit, that you would probably be more likely to show up in a place like the Caribbean than you would be like in Roswell, uh, New Mexico. And so he was like, whenever I start seeing UFO photos from the Caribbean, then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be more interested in the, the details. I thought that was kind of an interesting response. One, yeah, that that seems seems really really interesting. But it also is a, it's a it's kind of an interesting way of saying, you know, do we think that life is out there? And uh, uh, you know, life as as we're learning is a is a tenacious thing, and it'd be ludicrous to think that this is the only place with you know a, a sentient being in this vast place we call the universe. So. But are they going ahead and crashing into the earth every, you know, every couple of, couple of years? I, I have my doubts. But that's, that's another story altogether. Um, one of the, the things that you did say on your website, and I'm just going to read this off real fast. This was point number four in, in the few things that uh, you've learned from the project thus far. The biggest impediment to us exploring the universe and improving the conditions on Earth is the way the vast majority of the human potential is wasted or undeveloped. We spend more time trying to convince everyone about what we should be, what should be done, excuse me, instead of actually doing anything. We spend more time talking about how money should be spent than actually developing our skills and improving our society. Can you expand on, on, on that? A little bit because that when I was reading your website, that was the point that really, really stood out to me. And it, it's something I just wanted to explore with you a little bit. Is, was, was that really the, 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 
sort of grassroots feeling that that you're getting out there? I I would say that feeling I doesn't just come from my my project, but also just looking at the distribution of how people spend their day and how we as a society kind of um, devote our interests and things. Um, you know, we have like talk shows and surveys and, you know, elections and campaigns and a whole bunch of, you know, like uh, pressure uh, groups. You have you have magazines and newspapers who have to fill their pages uh, regardless of how much value that content necessarily has. You have people kind of arguing on, you know, why society is this way or that way. And if you took some percentage of that energy and actually uh, devoted to actually addressing uh, a lot of the issues that are, are being described or discussed or, um, you know, I mean, you could, there's probably, you know, millions of articles and conversations and what have you about, you know, how dirty our streets are. But uh, to actually take those people and have them actually pick up the the, the trash on the streets uh, would actually probably go a long ways to making that, that problem go away. Um, and also, I mean, if you look at how much um, kind of energy is put into sort of forming companies and doing marketing and, and, you know, selling to investors as opposed to actually developing products. Um, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like, it just seems like we have so much potential, but it's, it all gets kind of sapped away into sort of like these, these unproductive ways. It's sort of like complaining about the weather. Everybody complains about it, but nobody think nobody can do anything about it. Um, it. But in this instance, it seems like we do. And by the way, you you kind of made me smile a little bit because I'm one of those idiots that go onto a. Uh, there's a local hiking trail around here and uh, where I live um, in Randolph, New Jersey. Here and on occasion, that thing gets all kinds of uh, trashed out. Instead of you know going ahead and writing letters to the editor and say this is garbage. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that'll go out and take a, just a, you know, empty plastic bag and wear a pair of gloves and just go out there and, and pick up all the plastic bottles that have been, you know, kind of sort of strewn all over the place. Um, so I, I kind of relate to, to where you're, you're coming from. Just, you know, it's sort of like that old adage, just do it. Um, but is, do you see that as, is that really the impediment to you? To you, that uh, I, I guess. Let me let me try to rephrase. I guess is this really the impediment to to further to furthering exploration, or is there there is something else? Um, well, I mean, I think I think a lot of it comes down to determination and commitment. You know, it, it it's it's if you look at successful people they're often and you looked at them before they were successful you would think they were complete failures but the difference is, is that they stuck with it until they succeeded and i think the only impediment to us actually expanding human humanity beyond earth 
I think the only impediment to us uh, fixing our environmental problems and making um, society the way we want it is, first of all, a vision on, on what that end goal is, and then second of all, a commitment to actually seeing it happen. And by commitment, actually doing things to make it happen and bring it a, about, I mean, um, and it's really difficult uh, because it's hard to have that level of commitment with anything. Yeah. Is, is that what you're seeing out there? Is that what people are telling you as well? Or, or what do you, is that a question on, on your, your, your checklist, uh, so to speak, is, is, is keeping everything kind of sustained and, and, you know, what is the magic formula in their mind to pushing forward? Yeah, I don't explore that with everybody. I, one, one question I've been asking fairly consistently for the past couple of years has been, where do you see humanity in 200 years? Uh, because that's a time frame beyond any of our anticipated lives, any of our children's anticipated lives, and really causes us to stretch out and, and think about not only what are repercussions of the trends today, but what are the trends of those repercussions and repercussions of those trends and, and that type of thing. You know, people have different levels of willingness and kind of thoughts uh, around doing that. And But, you know, based upon that, I mean, one common thing I, I get a lot is, we should have flying cars by then. So nobody's given up on that. We, uh, at the same token, uh, I don't think anybody's seriously looking at making a mass market uh, flying car right now <laughs> either. I, you know, and I think I'm okay with that because, um, you know, everybody's excited about the flying car, but I just wonder how many people are excited about the falling car. Because it seems like... <laughs> Yeah, that'll hurt. Yeah. Um, not only not only the 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 uh, the pilot and the passenger, but anybody on the ground too. And it's I guess that's something too that uh, you know before we we have the quote flying car, the FAA is going to have to take a look at and figure out what the heck they're going to do. Um, yeah, I remember when you asked me that question, and I I really hated to speculate. So I'm going to ask you that question: Where do you see us in in about 200 years? Because I I had a very I don't know. I, I had an interesting reply when uh, when you asked me that question. Um, and if anybody's interested, I'll post a link to my interview in the show notes on this. Um, but uh, what you know, where do you see us in two hundred years? I'm going to throw that. I'm going to turn the tables on that on that for a little bit. I think we definitely have various colonies throughout the solar system. And I think we are definitely using the resources of space to further humanity. Mm -hmm. I think one of the drivers for people to go into those, um, those, those colonies, unfortunately, is probably the same type of thing that drove a lot of people from Europe into North America. And that is, they feel like that the conditions here have gotten to the point where it would, I mean, one challenge with Earth is is not nature, and it's not all the the natural uh, things. It's it's people. Uh, you you don't know if you're going to be in the middle of a nuclear war or, um, you know, have some type of, uh, you know, big uh, pandemic or 
uh, something like that. But in the a Mars colony, you already have sort of a filter in terms of who gets there. And you already have kind of like a different set of expectations of the people that are there. And you also have physical separation between that group of people and the people on Earth. And I think what you will see just sort of like throughout a time where you have sort of like, you know, islands of humanity kind of uh, have, you know, big innovative periods. And that's where like the, the advancement of humanity happens. I think you have these islands throughout the solar system, which will really pull humanity into that next phase. And, you know, I think you'll have trade between them, which will help enrich everybody from a cultural and technology and economic perspective. But, you know, a lot of the trends that we see today in terms of the, I mean, if you went back, you know, say 200 years, maybe the the life of the, the absolutely richest person and the poorest person weren't as different as the life between the the poorest person and the richest person today. And I think you'll see that trend stretch out even further. Um, so um, it's going to be very hard for uh, everybody in society to relate to everybody else because we'll literally all be living in completely different worlds. So I think you'll see more of that trend. You see us um, expanding. So, in other words, you you basically see another two hundred years the the inner solar system basically populated and possibly even going out to the outer solar system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll have huge orbital facilities. You know, that will be able to be like even completely artificial places where people live. And I, I think we'll figure out how to move those things around, and then. You know, that becomes the basis of like the first generational ship that takes us to other star systems. And I I think along the way, we might discover uh, physics and technology that, you know, is kind of interesting. So can you imagine if you were just in like one room in your house and you never went outside that room and you were asked, draw a picture of not only the house, but the entire street. And, you know, you're, you're like, well, based upon this room, you know, it's, you have like these, these lines and I have like this idea. And the moment you take a step out of that room, you see stuff that you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And it completely changes your, your view. And then you take a step out of your house and that completely changes your view. And you look in the next neighborhood. And I know we have telescopes and uh, rovers and, uh, you know, even a helicopter flying on Mars, but having the actual person there uh, with those experiences and asking questions and trying things out, I think it's going to open our eyes in ways that it's, it's very difficult. You know, it's like a fish has no idea what water is, but the moment you take him out of the aquarium, he becomes well-educated. <laughs> Yeah, you're making a, a similar point. I believe that uh, Steve Squires of uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers fame uh, made. He said that uh, uh, 
he asked if you know who was better uh, at things, the the robot or the human, and he basically said that uh, well, our two robots have covered, uh, you know, I forget the exact mileage, and and for, forgive me, uh, but he said he covered all these miles over their their you know thirteen or you know fourteen year careers, and and uh, but imagine if what how far we could have gone with the human on the surface and what we could have done and how far we really could have exceeded that. But because we could have done you know, these distances and in, in far shorter time if we had a human on, on the surface. So you're, you're kind of alluding to, to something I was, I was sort of uh, thinking about when you're, when you were, uh, you're talking there. It's a, it's a little bit more than just the extent of exploration, but you know, the emotional impact Yes. Uh, you know, I, you can see pictures all day long of the Grand Canyon, but uh, being there in person is not reproducible. And even before Apollo 8, you know, we had things in orbit that could take pictures of the Earth. I'm sure we even had pictures of the Earth before Apollo 8. But, you know, for them to actually go around the moon and then see the Earth as a ball just hovering there in space had a big impact on them. And in some degree, they were able to, to kind of convey that to, to us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a way, um, if you really want to, want to think about it, um, Apollo eight and the, the infamous moonrise picture, I mean, earthrise picture, excuse me, uh, that probably started the, uh, the big ecological uh, renaissance here. We were finally starting to think, hey, we, we should start cleaning up our, our act down here because we're the, you know, this is it. You know, you know, you look at the moon and then you look being this barren, dusty place, and then you go ahead and, and there's the earth. This, as Jim Lovell had put it, the the earth is this this grand oasis in the in the vastness of space. And uh uh, I think that message kind of kind of drove home, if you will. Getting back to your project, do you see a book out of this, or or what what do you see as 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 the total end game? Yeah, I don't really have a good end game. Um, I think m- my challenge right now is that I started with one thousand eight hundred and forty days to the end of twenty twenty four, and I had this framework of doing an interview per day. Mm-hmm. And I haven't missed a day. And I have like 500 and some odd days to go. Uh, so right now, I am intensely focused on just completing that uh, sort of the interview part. And I, I think what it likely will happen is I'll set it aside for a few years. And then I'll come back and revisit it and think about, uh, you know, is there sort of a phase two or do I just keep these interviews and, and maybe make them a little bit more accessible and searchable and easier for people to kind of uh, navigate? Um, I also have thoughts on, it. Well, you know, Astrobotics uh, was doing a promotion of DHL called the, the Moon Box. You could yeah. pay so much and they would put on their Peregrine um, Moon Lander, which is due to launch this year. So it was yep. also launched last year and the year before. But um, anyway, so I went ahead and did that. And the first year of interviews, I put on a little micro SD card and it's going to the moon. Um, but I've also thought, 
you know, maybe I should think about trying to preserve these interviews in a way that doesn't, that requires simpler technology to listen to. And one thought I had was sort of like a phonograph record type thing where, you know, you would kind of make a physical record and the grooves would have the audio and you could use, you know, even if you didn't know our memory formats or how to interface with the SD card, uh, you, you could probably, uh, a future civilization, you'll probably figure out how to play a record. We might, we might all sound like chipmunks or uh, sound really um, low in voice if the, the speed ding it right, but maybe we could put some instructions on there that could transcend uh, language. Um, so anyway, I, I've been thinking along lines uh, like that. Um, you know, I, I more recently I was thinking, what if you could put a device on the moon that could take a moon, uh, you know, lunar regolith, uh, turn it into to records, and you can uh, record, uh, you know, just transmit up the audio, and you won't have to send any any like physical stuff, and you just have this huge stack of moon records with all these interviews on it. So, but uh, yeah. So you're looking at basically the 21st century of the Voyager record. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, no these these ideas come uh, come along. I think for me, uh, the best product that I'm getting out of is just expanding my viewpoints. Mm-hmm. I, I find I am genuinely impressed by both the generosity of everyday people, of strangers that I've never interacted with before, to participate in this project. And I'm also generally amazed by the intelligence and the thoughtfulness that people have if asked the right questions. And I think that's probably one of the um, downfalls of our society or maybe missed opportunities in our society is that we are asking people the wrong question. Instead of asking who are we going to vote for, we should ask them, what kind of world do you want to live in? You know, instead of asking them, you know, do you agree with this specific bill? You know, ask them, you know, how do you, what's the path to get to the world you want to live in? You know, these types of things. People um, are, are really, really smart, actually. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that. I mean, you know, everybody thinks that uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the average individual, and I hate that term, is just sort of interested in just dealing with their own lives. And you, I mean, I was poking around the site too, and just just playing back some of the interviews, and uh, there is a there's there's a lot of profundity there. And uh, if if folks have not done that or don't know about your site, and I hope uh, through this interview they do, I hope they do get to get a chance to poke around those interviews and kind of see what the viewpoints are and and all of that. It's also f- interesting to listen to the negative viewpoints as well because you kind of see what we're up against and you what what are us as space advocates and, and are up against as far as trying to get um you know the the public at large to kind of support what what uh what uh what nasa is doing and uh you kind of get ideas to possibly um maybe change things a little bit and maybe change the approach of uh of communicating these things. So as a bit of a science communicator too, uh, full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a, uh, 
member of the uh, the uh, J- JPL Solar System Ambassador Program. Um, th- this kind of also could be used as a as an interesting uh, jump off point for individuals doing scientific outreach, but to a, a broad audience and understanding the viewpoints and where they're coming from. This little experiment that you're doing could really, really help go a long way in, in trying to paint that picture. So if anybody is interested, final question here, if anybody's interested in, because uh, I know you're, you're trying to get to 700 interviews, correct? I, well, uh, an interview a day since December of 2019 through the end of 2024. So I have, and I should uh, take a look and I give you an exact number, including the interview that I need to do today. So I have to, oh, let me get out of here. I have to go out and uh, uh, find somebody uh, willing to to speak. Um, But uh, including that interview, I I think I have like 500, and it's like really weird. My uh, connection is, is not so. Not so good at the moment, but yeah, I have 561 uh, more interviews uh, to go. So, so folks want to go ahead and be a, a member of that great uh, 561 group. Where can they go ahead to reach out to you and say, "Yeah, I, I've got something to say about about spaceflight and um, and the Artemis program," and uh, uh, or I would just love to go ahead and talk about. Uh, my attitudes towards spaceflight, uh, where do they go ahead and contact you? Yeah, probably the easiest way is just to go to countdowntothemoon.org and click on the link at the top that says, let me interview you. And that'll give you a little idea on what the project's about. And there will be a link there to a calendar where you can sign up for a day and time that will work for both of us. And then send you an email with the Zoom link. So that would be probably the easiest. And if that doesn't work out, there's also a way there to kind of get in touch with me and, and we can we can figure something out. And as somebody that has gone through the process myself, um, it's painless, folks. Uh, and uh, Nathan is a is a great guy to talk to. And he's more than happy to to hear yay or nay, whatever your positions are. And that's exactly right. I'm, I'm not here. And I. I try to make this clear to everybody is that I, I'm not here to convince you. I mean, I, I want to convince people of something, but not as far as this project. I'm here with a genuine curiosity and genuine interest in understanding what you think and the way you see the world, even if that's something that goes against everything that I've thought and know. Um, I may ask questions about, you know, kind of how you came about this idea, but all in the spirit of, of trying to see how your view of the world uh, kind of emerged. Nathan Price, I really want to say thank you. I know that you've got a whole bunch of things going on and I do appreciate your time. Uh, I'm really excited about this project and I'm looking forward to seeing what else comes of it because there's a, there's a lot of data here that could be, could be used and 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 looked at and 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 really really just taken and learned from as far as people's attitudes toward uh, toward space flights. So uh, thank you for doing this and thank you for spending uh, time with us uh, on Talking Space. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Gene. It was such a, a fun experience to talk to you, and thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you.